Welcome back to the IF Future Leaders Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Dylan Riddle, and I'm joined now by another one of my colleagues from the Future Leaders Class of 2020. Uh, welcome to the show, Carla Slim. Good morning, Dylan. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for joining us. And Carla, you're an economist for MENAP in Turkey at Standard Chartered Bank. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about you know, kind of your current role and uh, how long you've been at Standard Chartered? Sure. So I've been with Standard Chartered now for eight years. I initially joined on the International Graduate Program back in 2012. So I got the opportunity to rotate across uh, all of the financial markets divisions. So that also includes back office, middle office and front office. Uh, And we got a chance to basically sit with the trading desks, the sales desks, risk, um, middle office, back office to get a sort of broad understanding of the business. And that's when I basically uh, discovered my affinity for economics, which I had studied in university. So that was sort of a natural consequence of uh, my path. And um, I rotated with the research team for around three months, following which uh, I got offered to stay back and become an economist for the Middle East uh, region. And that was eight years ago now. Great. And Carla, you have the uh, cool distinction of being the only future leaders class member that I've actually met in person. Um, We met briefly at the the G20 summit that the IIF hosted in Riyadh earlier in February, which was uh, consequentially also my last trip abroad since COVID started. Um, So every time I talk to someone that I I have seen there, it's like talking to someone from a, a completely different universe. Um, but why don't you kind of bring us up to speed on, on anything that's been going on since then and, and kind of how uh, COVID has impacted your, your day-to-day. Obviously, you're based in Dubai for our listeners, but um, you know anything interesting that's happened since then and, and kind of uh, how your year has been under lockdown? Yeah, no, absolutely. And for me as well, uh, that Saudi trip we had done at the G20 was also my last business trip. And I remember at that time, uh, I had to get exceptional approvals from the bank to be to be able to still carry through that trip because we had seen the COVID spread already reach uh, Dubai and the UAE um, back in Feb. Um, and so, yes, that was my last business trip. I was really looking forward to a packed year. I have to say 2020 was supposed to be uh, our peak year in terms of business travel. We had a lot of roadshows uh, that we had planned in Europe and the UK and the US, even the Future Leaders um, program was supposed to also include um, a sort of trip to the Netherlands and also to Washington uh, during the IMF meetings. Um, Obviously, that didn't go through, but uh, I'm an optimist by nature and I tend to look at the positive things all the time, whether it's in my personal or, or professional life. And I definitely can't pinpoint some silver linings professionally and personally um, that I've gone through or I've found in 2020 through this pandemic. On the professional side, I I would definitely say that we have become more productive, more efficient in working from home. I mean, I had a packed agenda in 2020. We were supposed to travel everywhere um, through the bank's network to meet clients and uh, really support our sales team and delivering our, our research reviews across the network. But despite the fact that we didn't travel after February, we still managed to do that. And I would say even more efficiently, because if I look at my sort of stats um, involving client engagement in 2020, comparing to 2019, we've actually had 
much more client engagement in 2020 compared to 2019, despite the fact that we were working from home. So that's really been eye-opening for me in the sense that we can reach uh, more people at once. We can still have the same sort of one-on-one -on -one engagements when it comes to delivering the research views to our clients and discussing macro uh, opportunities and challenges. Yes, we have lost a bit of the uh, human aspect to it and, and uh, relationship building aspect to it perhaps uh, in the process, but from a pure you know, productivity standpoint, uh, it hasn't been all negative. Absolutely. And I think it was really difficult right at the beginning of the year, right at the beginning of lockdown. And I'm sure just like Sandra chartered the IF, we were, we were scrambling to figure out how do we keep, how do we change our business model, which is essentially having, you know, key executives fly around the world and meet with all of our members in person and shake their hands and sit down and talk to them and hear about what their issues were. Uh, to how do you do that without having to travel and do it virtually? Um, so kind of what what were, Carla, how did that change how you presented your research? Were things still, um, you know, were they very written-based and, you know, emailing it around or were you doing Zooms every day? Or how, how did, you know, more specifically, how did your engagement with clients change um, over the course of the year to take advantage of that? Definitely, we've had way more webinars. So yes, we, we did write more because, the time we usually spend on planes was freed up. So we had the opportunity and the chance to spend more time working on our product and, and uh, coming up with the, the reports and writing our, our reports. Uh, and all the client meetings we were supposed to do during the year were then converted into one-on-one -on -one, uh, sort of VCs. But we also hosted way more uh, broad webinars whereby we would get multiple um, team members that would not regularly come together in, in live conferences and physical conferences. Um, we, we were connecting several members of the research team uh, globally because my team is basically global. We have um, obviously a big a part of our team based in London, but also a big part based in Hong Kong and Singapore as well. Uh, and so this gave us the opportunity to team up, collaborate together and deliver the broader webinars for the clients, whereby we would uh, combine a multitude of topics and reach a wider audience than if we were actually hosting physical and, and live conferences. So I, I guess that would be the major big change um, that COVID brought about in terms of the positive change. Otherwise, what we would have done physically in terms of the one-on-one -on -one meetings, we were just converting into one-on-one -on -one So that's obviously been a, a bit of what you're doing now. And for people who are just listening to the podcast for the first time, uh, we structure a lot of these conversations about what, what our interviewees are, are doing now, what they've done in the past, and what they're kind of looking forward to in 2021. So I wanted to pivot slightly to kind of what the rest of your, your career trajectory has looked like so far at Standard Chartered, Carla, if that's okay with you. And I know you mentioned the, the trainee program um, and kind of how you got broad exposure to the bank. We've talked with a number of other classmates about how important it is to have kind of these experiences where you get a broad, um, you know, a bunch of different perspectives in a fairly short amount of time. And whether that's back office, front office or middle office, um, but maybe you can you can talk to us about um, how that kind of helps shape not only figuring out what you want to do, but how if it applies kind of to how you approach your current job and your current role in the bank, um, if at all. It's really important, in my opinion, that uh, people 
look at basically not just what they think they're good at or what they think they like uh, and would, would excel in terms of field or in terms of technical role and becoming a, a specialist in a specific field. Because there's this very big debate about whether it's best to be a generalist or a specialist or to start out your career as a generalist or, or, or a specialist in a specific field. What's really important in my opinion and what I tried to do really early on is find out, uh, learn more about myself, learn more what my character would suit best in terms of uh, roles uh, in finance and in economics, because I knew that that was the sort of broad field that, that I wanted to explore and in which I wanted to work. And so it, it goes back even sometimes as early as high school, whereby uh, before picking your major or before specializing in a specific uh, topic, even in a, in, a, in a specific field such as banking and finance, for example, uh, because you can either do you know just pure finance, international finance, economic, pure economics. So before going or jumping into something like that, it's really important that uh, people get out and get some practical uh, experience, even if you're very young and that doesn't necessarily mean a full internship or, or a full um, sort of two to three month uh, apprenticeship. But if it's just even shadowing people uh, going on, going into their place of work and just observing, that's really also important to be able to, to know if you can see yourself doing these roles and um, basically performing uh, the way these people perform in, in their jobs. So I was pushed to do that in high school. Um, that was my first time on a dealing room, in a dealing room actually, uh, back in Lebanon when I was finishing high school. And that was when I decided specifically that I wanted to study economics. Um, and if it wasn't working in financial markets, then I definitely wanted to work in the broader field of economics. And at the end, I ended up joining the IG program, the International Graduate Program, at Standard Chartered Bank in Dubai, where it was, uh, I chose the purely financial markets stream because you can always choose uh, very different uh, streams of graduate programs in different, in different banks. Um, and the reason why I chose the financial market stream is because I had already been on a trading floor um, back in high school, really early on. And I remembered the vibe, I remembered the buzz, and that stayed with me. Uh, in, in the sense that this is something, this is where I wanted to be. But then on the trading floor, you had you know six different options of things you wanted to do. And I remember many of my fellow grads were you know similar to me, lost in terms of what we wanted to do, where we wanted to go. And a lot ended up choosing, or many of them ended up choosing uh, career paths that they thought uh, were the right ones, ended up not really being the right ones because they didn't take the time to figure out what they were good at, what they wanted, what their character suited for before they jumped into a, a sort of specific role that sounded, you know, sometimes very prestigious or um, that people usually seek. So that's really important, learning about yourself, uh, getting also the help of the institutions. So all HR departments and, and big institutions tend to provide that sort of support in terms of matching characters to roles. Uh, or character traits to roles, and that's also really important. I completely agree, and it's a really interesting point because I, I kind of firmly believe that anybody could figure out how to do a role really well, and it's just a matter of how much work it takes to get to excelling at that role. So, you know, I'm confident that I could sit down and learn how to do something that is very specific if I really force myself how to do it. 
But at the end of the day, maybe I don't want to force myself to do it. And maybe it's not that interesting to me. And at the end, it wouldn't be worth doing. And so it's kind of this interesting figuring out where it is that you want to put that time in. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's, I feel like for a lot of us, probably in the future leaders program and a lot of people listening to this, it's not just 40 hours a week. It's a lot more than that, whether you, you know, you're working on the weekends or adding in nights or whatever it is. And so finding a role that makes sense to you and it makes, uh, it's something that you want to be doing rather than, I just think this is where I should be. So I'm going to spend all my time trying to get really good at this. Cause I, I almost don't think that the being good at it is a lot easier to achieve than it is to find something that's really enjoyable. I don't know. Does that, does that make sense to you, Carla? Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And enjoying the job is, is really very important. And not everyone has that privilege. Uh, and I think the fact that not everyone has that privilege also boils down or goes back. You can pinpoint you know, decisions in your career path where you could have done things differently that would have uh, led you to be in, in a role that you actually enjoy versus something you think uh, pays well or would look good on your CV or would just make sense because of what you studied and where you've been. Yeah, there's always those trade-offs. And the other thing I will say is that it's, I think it can also be pretty clear that not every part of every job is going to be awesome and be super fun all the time. Like this is a, recording these podcasts and doing this is a particularly fun part of my job, but there's plenty of things that I don't want to spend lots of time doing. And it all comes down to, to kind of trade-offs. And like you said, if it's, if it's money or whether or not you'd enjoy the job, or maybe it's some combination where this job is actually what I need to do to get to another level further down the road. And like, I need to put in this not as enjoyable work to get to something I'd really enjoy, but it's all about, um, I think for especially people young in their careers, understanding what those trade-offs are and understanding that okay i'm going to do this because i enjoy it and i get family life family work balance or i'm going to do this because it gets me to the next thing and it might not be very fun for a while uh versus someone waking up one day and realizing oh i've wasted a, a long time doing things that i really didn't enjoy so i know you'd kind of mentioned the difference between you know being a generalist versus a specialist but i think for a lot of people it comes across economists especially comes across as being quite a specialist is that something you you kind of agree with i will add my own kind of two cents at the end of this because i i think i have an interesting take as well i agree in the sense that i've i've definitely specialized in research now uh, in my eight years at the bank so i'm definitely seen as the go-to person in the bank on all things middle east um north africa pakistan and turkey uh, and that, that definitely makes me a sort of specialist in that sort of advisory role. But similarly, and on, on the flip side, I would also say that being an economist, by essence, you tend to see the big picture. And because we also cover as well some of the global themes that pertain to the Middle East region, we definitely look at things top down. And that also helps in the sort of broad view you know, your broad profile, your broad experience that could fall under being a generalist as well. But in my very specific role in the bank, I would say I'm a specialist. Yeah, I think talking to, obviously, at the IF, we have a, a huge team of economists um, and then talking to, to others as well. And I'd be curious if this sounds similar to, to your experiences, but um, it seems like almost uh, the like the movie or you know cinema version of an economist that's just working on spreadsheets and doing forecasts and like that is the entirety of the job is uh and maybe that was some 20 or 30 years ago or something like that and that's like this outdated view but 
today, the economists that I all work with and it seemingly talking to you as well, um, it's you're a specialist on a, an issue area, but your skills are much more similar to the generalist. Like you have to be an excellent communicator. You have to be able to talk to clients and press and um, you know other people in the business, and you have to be able to explain complex issues. Um, you know whether it's why something is particularly risky or what your outlook is and justifying what your outlook is um, to a huge range of people in a really effective way, which is you know. I sometimes I think even more similar to like my skill set as a, as a professional communicator. Um, but I'd be curious if that kind of matches up with what, what you think about too. Um, but I've, I've kind of just always been at my time at the IF, um, I guess slightly surprised coming in, but then always impressed with the, the more generalist skills that a lot of the economists have. I agree because they're really transferable skills. So it's it's really useful what you learn on the job and, and what you were saying about being able to communicate effectively. I mean, you could write a brilliant report, but if you don't uh, really focus on your delivery in terms of uh, after, you know, selling the report after it's published, both to your internal stakeholders, your external stakeholders, uh, also the media relationships that you have, then that's a lot of work that's really gone to waste, right? So uh, on the communication part, I definitely agree with you that it's a transferable skill. It's a really useful skill to have in terms of being a communicator. And uh, to be honest, especially at the banking sector level, being a bank economist, it's more than half of the job. So being able to research, write well, come up with differentiated views, that's Obviously, the bread and butter of being an economist, whether you're at a bank or you're in a public institution or on the policymaking front, but also the delivery, because you're a bank economist and you're client facing and your clients are, you know, a very wide range of clients, like you were saying that the audience is, is wide ranging. Uh, being a bank economist, you have clients that are investors, portfolio managers, so really very in tune to the countries that they cover. And then you also have corporates that are part of the real economy, the real sectors that uh, in the COVID shock, for, for example, have had seen first and forehand the, the extent and the magnitude of the, of the shock and the, and the job layoffs that the economy experienced, which is different to talking to an investor who's looking at uh, treasury bills or, or bonds or euro bonds. And then you also have uh, private banking clients, the individuals that are looking to invest their own money. So it's really a, a wide variety of, of client segments that you're you're talking to uh, by being a bank economist so that skill that you learn which is really transferable as well on just public speaking and being able to deliver your views properly efficiently in a concise manner is, is really what's really important for me most of the time that's i would say the biggest challenge and the biggest um a driver of what keeps us going also in our job so what was it like for you to to get up to speed and kind of build those skills over the last uh, eight years? I think you've you've been in Santa Charter. So, you know, kind of how how would you rate yourself when you'd come in on those like kind of communications and promotion skills? How would you rate yourself when you came in and how would you rate yourself now? And kind of what would you attribute to some of that growth? I had a very interesting experience in the sense that I've been lucky with really good mentors very early on. Uh, and because the team was structured in a way, you know, we've always been a very small Middle East team um, in the bank. 
the team was structured in a way that I didn't really have the luxury to be able to learn slowly or you know get up to speed at my own pace in terms of these communication um, experiences or opportunities. So very early on, I was thrown into uh, live TV interviews. Um, very early on, I was thrown on panels with very senior people. So, you know, uh, even as, as an analyst, uh, I would sit on panels with CEOs, with, with really you know, managing directors, very senior people in, in the region and, and globally. Uh, and I think that that really helped me very early on in my career in the sense that uh, if you wait till you're ready, you're never going to really be ready. Uh, that's that's the most important thing. And for me, that's the that's my biggest takeaway from my early career in terms of lessons that don't wait until you're ready because you're you're never going to be ready. And if anyone offers any sort of opportunity and you're not really sure if you can do it or not, just say yes and then figure it out. So that was the two big takeaways for, um, from my career in the, in the first two to three years. Uh, and that really helped, helped me build the fundamentals of communication. Now, obviously, I've, I've still continued to grow since then. Um, you learn how to do more of these communication experiences uh, or opportunities and engagements in a, in a more efficient manner so that you can do uh, more quantity and also more quality. That makes a lot of sense. I'm a big fan of the phrase like drinking from a water hose or, you know, you're going to sink or swim. I, at least, you know, based on my experiences and then because it taught me so much going through those experiences, it's uh, when you just have to figure out whether or not you can do something and it's not because you need, it's not because you want to figure it out, it's because you need to do it because you're thrust into this new experience uh, and you have to do it for your job or have to do it to be able to succeed in whatever you're doing. And you have that kind of, you're either going to sink or you're going to swim. Um, I think that's where people end up learning the most and you end up uh, developing kind of your long-term skill set the, the quickest based on one, the opportunity, but two, because you really need to do it. Um, so that's, it's a, it's an important lesson that sometimes the most stressful situation is also, you know, you want to curse out your boss for being put in that situation, but you also will probably benefit the most from it. I absolutely agree. And also your, your managers can only take you to the water, right? So I had my, my first boss used to say, I can only take you to the water. It's your decision what you decide to do with that opportunity, whether you swim or you drown. Um, so so you, we also cannot put all the sort of onus on our managers to teach us, to, to drive us. They will give us the opportunities, but at the end of the day, it's also what we make. Absolutely going to steal that for the next round of reviews. I got to do with my staff uh, coming up in the middle of the year. That sounds like a that sounds like a pretty good good saying. Um, so I want to quick. I know we're. I promise not to take up too much of your time, and we're probably pushing up against that now. But I wanted to before we leave, kind of have a chance to touch base on what you're looking for in 2021, and um, you know, particularly you're in a really interesting region. Um, I know I saw Ian Bremer's group, the Eurasia Group, had uh, the Middle East on two of their top 10 risks were stemming from the Middle East for 2021. Um, but if you wanted to kind of give us a quick overview of what you're expecting in the region and um, coming out of COVID now that vaccines are being rolled out and that sort of thing, um, I know you mentioned you're an optimist. So do you have an optimistic look for 2021? Okay, I'll give you the optimistic look, but also I'll, I'll caveat it with the risks that we see. So from a health perspective, uh, especially at the moment, I mean, if I were to compare the Middle East with um, the UK or the US, we're, and even Europe, 
at this stage, you know, Dubai is completely open. Uh, the UAE is completely open. We've had, in terms of the health crisis, it's been relatively more contained. The number of infections and the second wave that we've seen before uh, has been a little bit more contained than what we've seen in the West so far. So from that perspective, yes, it does seem that the region is emerging from the health crisis. Uh, the vaccine rollout seems to be on track over here. Uh, in the UAE, uh, people above the age of 60 have already started receiving the vaccine as well. So it's uh, almost on par with the speed that we've seen the vaccine rollout in the UK. Um, so from that perspective, yes, very optimistic. We think that the two big winners in the region that could benefit from a resumption of travel and tourism are the UAE specifically with uh, Expo 2020 being hosted in Dubai in October 2021, but also Egypt that has a really large uh, tourism sector that typically uh, boosts not just economic growth, but also affects flows uh, into the economy. And that's really important in terms of the currency, but also in terms of uh, maintaining this, basically the best EM story that we've seen in the, in the last couple of years in terms of macroeconomic reforms, fiscal reforms, and a successful IMF program. Um, so these are the two big winners that we see benefiting from the region's relatively uh, better position, let's say, from a health crisis perspective. But more broadly, and where the risk is, we, we think, is really around oil prices. Because what we've seen uh, in the region is that typically when there's an oil price shock or when oil prices remain uh, relatively low for a longer period of time, it doesn't only hurt the oil exporting countries of the region, so the GCC plus Iraq, it also hurts the oil importing countries of the region because there is a lot of uh, regional flows in terms of capital flows, investment flows, portfolio flows within the region. So there's high integration there that tends to suffer when oil prices remain lower and liquidity in the oil exporting countries also remains tighter for longer. So that I would say is one of the key constraints that might uh, hinder the region from doing a sort of 360 degree uh, recovery, similar to what um, you know, analysts are expecting, let's say in the US or in the UK, in Europe, in the West, um, even in Asia, we, we're not really expecting the region to go back to 2019 levels of GDP um, by the end of 2021. It might take a little bit longer, perhaps mid-2022, because of the oil prices, uh, because we don't expect oil prices to go back to above the fiscal break-even. So this region will need to continue reforming, um, and fiscal reforms typically take away from short-term um, growth. So that's going to also sort of hinder and, and put, a, put a limit on the extent of the recovery that we see in 2021. Awesome. Thank you, Carla. I'm, I'm looking forward to 2021 and hopefully getting back, back on the road and out of D.C. for a little bit. It's been uh, much longer than I anticipated uh, or I have been stuck in D.C. for a long time now. So I'm excited to get back on the road and hopefully uh, be able to get at events and see you and a bunch of our other future leader colleagues around the world. But thank you for taking the time to join the show. It was a super interesting conversation and I really appreciate you being able to share your insights uh, and outlook for the region too as we're coming out of this COVID-19 pandemic. Absolutely, Dylan, and definitely looking forward to seeing you again.